cleansed you and washed away your sin. That makes you a member of the blood-washed band. Praise God, I'm a member of the blood-washed band. I've been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. I was bound by chains of sin till one day. Are you a member of the, uh, the Blood Wash Band? Yeah, that's an awesome song. I enjoy that, and I appreciate it, ladies. And uh, yes, the mysterious draped object. I hope it's not too distracting. I thought about that. I know I'm OCD, and it, I probably will be staring. You know, if I was in the congregation tonight, I'd probably be staring at it the whole time, too. So I'll just take it as though you're listening very intently as you stare at the object in front of us. Um, but it's not a sculpture, all right? I'll give you that much. It's not a sculpture. But uh, turn your Bibles, if you would, this evening to Ezra. And uh, Pastor, uh, this afternoon, asked me if I was ready to preach. And we were just getting ready to leave the, uh, the building over there. And we had been working building walls all day. And he said, what do you want to preach about, building the wall? And, uh, and I jokingly, I said, no, no, I'm not. But I am talking about Ezra, and that's, you know, pretty close to Nehemiah. And uh, only, if only we could be done the carousel in 53 days like they were. You know, I'd be pretty stoked. <laughs> I think Brother Wetzel would too. He had a rough day over there today, and uh, he was working hard, and um, yeah, he, he had a rough day, but I uh, appreciate Brother Rick. He has done a ton of work over there, and uh, finishing all that drywall, it's not easy stuff, and um, I don't know. I've not, I haven't done the calculations. I will when we're done. How many board feet of drywall we've hung? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheets of drywall or board feet of drywall, and he's finished just about all of it himself, and uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, but Ezra chapter nine, Ezra chapter nine, and uh, Ezra Nehemiah, pretty amazing books, and some of my favorite in all of the Bible, uh, just because of how the Lord worked and and uh, how He performed miracles, how He was patient with His people, forgiving and long suffering, and uh, and then worked in them again, and then they turned their back on him, and then he still worked in them again. And uh, the message I'm going to preach tonight is actually something that our teenagers have already heard, um, and I had a message I was going to preach on Gideon, and um, the Lord laid this on my heart to preach this message. Uh, is a message that actually um, I was able to preach at youth conference just a few weeks ago. Uh, we went to a youth conference out in Illinois, and I was asked to speak one of the mornings at the youth conference, and I preached this message. And so you'll get a little taste of what youth conference is like, I guess. But uh, 
looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us this evening. Ezra chapter 9, and uh, we're going to read a little bit here, but uh, before we begin, I I think most of you, as far as um, this story goes, you're familiar with what's going on. Uh, The children of Israel, uh, Jeremiah prophesied that they would be taken captive, and they were. Uh, They were taken captive for 70 years. And so for 70 years, children of Israel were uh, slaves in a foreign land. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't have the comfort of their home, and uh, really their home had been completely destroyed. They had one too many times turned their back on God, and once again he had to punish them to get their attention. And in order to do so, uh, he allowed them to become slaves in a foreign country. And uh, the temple was destroyed, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls were torn down, and uh, Solomon's temple was obliterated. And uh, really is a tragic uh, state of events, a, a tragic turn. Uh, for the children of Israel, because they had worked so long to accomplish those things. Not only had they worked, but God had been patient and (laughs) working in them and allowing them to do that. But eventually, as was prophesied, they would only be in captivity for so long, and that time came up. Seventy years passed by, and the king, um, King Cyrus, let the children of Israel go. No, well, not all of them. He let 50,000 of them go. It's a pretty good number. 50,000 people, he released them back to Jerusalem to rebuild. He allowed them to go back and said, even with instructions, and, and more than just instructions and permission, he sent, uh, he sent them with letters uh, telling the, the enemies that were around them, hey, don't attack them, even provide for them. If they ask so much of you, you need to give to them up to a certain amount what they ask. And, and, uh, and so the king, King Cyrus, sent Zerubbabel back. And Zerubbabel took 50,000 of the Jews back to Israel to rebuild uh, the city. All right? 70 years after captivity, Zerubbabel takes 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Now we're going to jump another 80 years. That's where we're at in our story. These people have already been in Jerusalem for 80 years. They're They're supposed to have just rebuilt their city. Now, I know remodeling the carousel has taken a long time, but... 80 years. I mean, their job was really, their primary job was to rebuild the temple. I sure hope it doesn't take 80 years. But they're going back there. I shouldn't even say stuff like that out loud, should I? No. (laughs) No. But they get back there, 80 years passes by, and Ezra is sent again. He comes to the king, um, and he, he has a burden to go back to his home country to teach the law to instruct the people on the things of God. And here we come to Ezra chapter 9, verse number 1. It says, Now when these things were done, and that's talking about the process of traveling, all right? So the process of traveling is over. Now when these things are done, the princes came to me saying, all right, so so Ezra comes back to the city, and, uh, and the people that he had brought with him, they went around and took an assessment of what was going on, the, the princes. They came back to Ezra saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonied 
Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonied even until the uh, I sat astonied until the evening sacrifice. Eighty years, they were the children of Israel. They had been in captivity for 70 years. You think after 70 years, there would be a a good group of people here who'd be pretty excited about being free. They'd be pretty excited about being able to serve and worship their God. Uh, You think that they would be pretty thrilled about being able to uh, have a walk and relationship with God unlike they were able to have when they were captives. But in in, in, in a measly 80 years you see that the children of Israel had already forgotten that they were slaves at one point. It only took 80 years. In that 80 years, something took place in the children of Israel's lives. It says that they mingled themselves with the world. They mingled themselves with the world. And a lot of times we look at it and we say, well, there's, there's always somebody. There's somebody. No, he... The, the, the princes come back to Ezra, uh, there's, we would say, there's, well, there's always there's got to be somebody who didn't mingle themselves. I, I don't think so. I think it was a pretty widespread thing. I think it was all of the Israelites that had mingled themselves with the world, all the ones that had come back. I, I believe that because the princes came back and said, they have not separated themselves from the people. And, and you know what? Who's the worst? It's the leaders who are the worst. Then it goes on to describe even saying that they mixed themselves in with all, and he, he lists them all. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. He lists, lists all the people, all the ungodly people. I think it was a pretty widespread <coughs> epidemic. Is that a good word used? It was a disease that had spread amongst all the people. They had all mingled themselves with the world. They were living, what the Bible says here, in abomination. Were they still God's people? Certainly were. Was he still working through them and in them? Certainly was. Even to the point that he sent Ezra back to continue the work. But they were living unseparated from the world. They had mingled themselves with the world and were living in abomination. As I read through this story, something caught my eye, however. And read with me, if you would, and... Chapter 9, verse 5. Here is Ezra. He says, At the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness. Here's a hurting man. He came back expecting to have the temple rebuilt. He was expecting to teach the children of Israel the law. That's what he came back for. I rose from my heaviness. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, Oh my God, I am... Ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands. So the sword, uh, to the sword, to captivity, and to, to a spoil and to confusion of face as it is this day. Ezra's opening prayer before God. And he says a lot of different things in there. How the children of Israel constantly turn back to sin. 
he also uses a word there that I think that a lot of Christians uh, struggle with today. He uses the word confusion. Actually, the, the phrase is confusion of face. What is confusion of face? Uh, they've forgotten their identity. They've forgotten who they are. You ever looked in the mirror and not realized that it was you looking? No. I, I mean, sometimes we, we look at it and we're like, I hope that's not me. But, you know, what you are always looks back at you. But the children of Israel, they had forgotten. They had confusion of, fa- of, of face. They forgotten their identity and as a result of that had fallen back into sin. Uh, Ezra says a lot in this little prayer that we just read. But one thing that really struck me was not the emphasis on the sin of the people. But it was the words of Ezra. Where he says there in that beginning part of the prayer, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee. I am ashamed. And that struck me. Why is Ezra ashamed? After all of these years, Ezra was an upright man. If you go back and look and learn about Ezra, <laughs> what has he done that was wrong? Was he in Israel for those 80 years that they had mingled themselves with the world? No, he wasn't. He was still in captivity. But he was still serving God. Even in captivity, he was serving God. And if you go and read uh, in Ezra chapter 7, it gives a description about Ezra as he prepared. But let me just give you the list. He was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. He knew God's word. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it in Israel, all the statutes and all the judgments. Ezra was entrusted by King Artaxerxes to actually go back. The king had enough confidence in Ezra and his knowledge of the law that he was willing to send Ezra back to instruct the people about their God. We're talking about a man here who was the leader of leaders. We're talking about the the kind of Christian that we would desire to be. And he comes back to the children of Israel and, and sees them in their condition of wickedness and sin, but he doesn't look at the people and say, I'm ashamed of you. He turns to God and says, I am ashamed. I blush to lift my face to thee. It blew my mind. It's so easy to be judgmental or to look at somebody else, especially when they're in open sin, living in abomination. And whereas it is right for us to encourage and exhort one another and and to encourage uh, and help each other out of sin, Ezra's response here was not one of the people need uh, one of the people's need for repentance. It was a response of his own personal need for repentance. He says here, "Oh my God, I'm ashamed to blush to lift my face to Thee." Listen to what he says: "For our iniquities." Here he goes. He throws himself right in with the people of Israel. Everything that they've been doing, all the wickedness they've been living in, our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up into the heavens. Since the day of our fathers have we been in a great great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, uh, our kings and our priests, been delivered. He goes on and on again. And you know what Ezra does? He puts himself right into the shoes of the people who were living in sin. I think Ezra understands something that a lot of us fail to understand or at least struggle with. Ezra grasped the wickedness of his sin. Ezra grasped grasped the wickedness 
of his sin. He understood how wrong his wrongs were. And although the people were living in an abomination, although they were living uh, in a total opposite against God's word, and although they have mingled themselves with the world, here comes Ezra. And although he would have every right as the preacher of the gospel to say, hey, you need to get your heart right, uh, and you need to get uh, forgiveness of your sin, and you need to get yourself back on track. You know what he does? You know how he opens it up? Oh, God, I'm ashamed. I blush to lift my face to thee. Not, be, not because of their sin, but because of his own. Ezra is demonstrating for us how he understood the importance or how wicked his sin was. I think we need to have a little reminder of that this evening. Because we could all quote Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But you know what we do as we're saved longer or we become more established in the church, we place ourselves into a category or into a, a column where we have respectable sins. See, if I were to go around and start asking some adults in this room, hey, Jake, have, uh, have you ever lied before? Yeah. Did you ever, Joaquin, did you ever steal a cookie or uh, some food or something you shouldn't have taken when you were a kid? We, we'd be kind of lighthearted about that. It's, it's not that big a deal to us. Why? Because we've, we've all lied before. We've all stolen something before. We've all done something that we shouldn't have done before. But what Ezra was, I believe, making the point of tonight, uh, or in this passage, was that he understood how wicked his sin was. And it didn't matter what the sin was. It, there is no point where it becomes respectable. But that's what we do. We allow sin to come into our lives and it becomes an acceptable sin. We don't feel as though it's wrong. Pride. Arrogance. Selfishness. Lying, cheating, stealing, gossiping, lust, disrespect, disobedience, lukewarmness, apathy, carnality, hypocrisy, fakeness, worldly desires, bitterness, jealousy. Here we go. You go through the list. Go on and on and on. On. We look at our sins and we say, this is okay for us. What's your level of, I'll watch it until this happens. I'll listen, till, I'll listen to it until this occurs. And the, thing, the thing about it is, is that we've all got, these own, we've got, all got our own level of, of what we'll accept, what's good. Let's be honest in our minds tonight. We can all draw a line and say, okay, this is where, this is where I'll stop. But the thing about it is, is that most of the time what we've done is we said everything from here down is acceptable. Although it may not even be good. It may not be right. And here the thing is, uh, whereas Ezra could have come and said, uh, hey, look, you're living in abomination. You've mingled yourself with the world. You've gotten yourself mixed up in all these things you shouldn't be involved with. Here Ezra comes and, and I don't know what Ezra's sin was. I don't know what he had done or what he hadn't done. But I know that when he walked up there, he was convicted about his own sin. He wasn't convicted about their sin. Do we grasp the wickedness of sin? Do we understand how much that hurts God? Because when God looks down from heaven and sees 
the fake Christian walk into church, it is just as hurtful and it is just as painful and it is just as putrid as a, a man marrying a man down at City Hall. But the thing about it is that we'll look at that and we'll say, that's wicked. And we won't look at ourselves and say, that's wicked. We don't, we don't grasp it. We don't understand it. And, and honestly, for the most part, we're complacent about this whole idea. We'd rather not be brought up because it is inconvenient and uncomfortable for us to have to draw higher lines of morality. It is inconvenient and uncomfortable for us to be more like Christ. Because we've got the way we want to live and, and we're used to the way that we want to live. We've drawn our lines and most of the time where we draw the line is where we're comfortable with things, not where God wants us to be. We fail to see what Ezra saw, the wickedness of our sin. But here's the truth I want to demonstrate for you tonight. We can go ahead and say, I'm a Christian, but I didn't walk with God today. This is God's law. He instructs us to walk with Him every day, does He not? Sure does. Okay, God's law. We just broke it. But it, I'll, I'll do better tomorrow. We know we shouldn't have done that. We know we shouldn't have skipped it. But it's, it's not wicked to us. It's not sin. We listen to God's name taken in vain over and over and over again, and it never pricks our spirit once. I, that's acceptable for me. I'm going to allow that on my television. I'm going to let my kids listen to it. I'm okay with that. We'll turn on the, the country music, uh, the whatever it is. We've drawn our lines where it's too ungodly for us. But let me point out something in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. Just listen. It's, let me first say, we're not so prideful to say that we've never sinned. We know that that would make God a liar, right? Let me just skip ahead. I could go through this whole pile of sticks with the little thing. I don't know what your little thing is. I could give, I could give Nate, you know, here's his little thing. There's your little thing. We've all got our own little things, okay? What does the Word of God say about if you break one? You've offended in all. The wickedness of our sin. But yet, unstirred, unmoved. I haven't stripped my garments. I'll be honest with you. I haven't stripped my garments off lately and, and uh, plucked my beard and sat in... Uh, I haven't pulled an Ezra lately. This is just as convicting to me, and I've, this is the second time I've preached this. Because we get so comfortable and so complacent about it, and if we're not constantly reminding ourselves and constantly fighting and working on it, uh, we become comfortable and it becomes uh, acceptable to us. In the 1970s, a psychiatrist, a secular counselor, made an observation. He said this, 
The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was a strong word, an ominous and serious word, but the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word, along with the notion, why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? The point of that, do I need to reread it? Everyone got it? The point of that is this. The psychiatrist who is not saved, the psychiatrist who is secular, the psychiatrist who is going about counseling people on his own humanistic ideas, he acknowledges that sin is one of those things that we choose to ignore. He said at one point in our history, it was a proud word. It was an ominous word. It was a a serious word. We looked at it and we said, that's wicked, that's wrong. I don't want anything to do with it. But yet today we allow it in moderation in our lives. Our attitudes, although we don't want to admit it, more often than not, is the attitude of the publican in the temple. It is not God be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, when's the last time? It, it, and and you've got to be honest with yourself for this to have any impact on your spirit. When is the last time you really examined yourself and in, in utter embarrassment and sincerity said, God, been merciful to me, a sinner. Rather than that, we go through our lives living, not necessarily saying, but living, God, I thank thee that I'm not as these other men are. But the thing about it, no matter how you look at it, it's putrefying to God. Because it's a level of lukewarm Christianity. And he wants no part of it. We need to grasp the wickedness of our sin. Paul, let me just make one observation here and move on. Paul, the longer he was saved, had an opposite reaction than most Christians. The longer we're saved the more comfortable we become. And that's really the truth of the matter. We become more comfortable. Things become more acceptable. They don't bother us as much. But Paul, the longer he was saved, and these are a chronological order, and you can just write these down if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He describes himself as the least of the apostles. I mean, not a high position, but, I mean, he's one of the apostles. Right? There's a pretty limited number of those. Moves on in his Christian life. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 describes himself as the least of all the saints. Not so lofty a position. The word, the, the gospel of Christ is spreading and there's a good number of Christians throughout the world. But uh, he doesn't describe himself so much as the least of all the apostles. Now he's the least of all the saints. By time we come to 1 Timothy and he's a pretty old man. You know how he describes himself? The chiefest of sinners. The longer he was saved, he went from the least of the apostles to the chiefest of sinners. And I think we need a little bit more of Paul in our lives. A little bit more of the grasping or understanding of the wickedness of our sins. But in order to do that, you've got to grasp your need for holiness. 
Because just understanding alone, uh, you can make an emotional decision on saying, okay, I understand that my sin is wicked, my sin is wicked, my sin is wicked. But that will only last as long as your understanding of your personal need for holiness. Holiness. It's a lost thing. It's, it's, it's not a part of most churches and it's not a part of most Christian homes and it's not a part of many congregations or youth groups or adult Sunday school classes or our Christian families. Holiness. What is it? And that's the question. Because I'm, it's a great contradiction. It's very difficult for me to stand up here and say we need holiness. You know why? Because when I say holiness, you have a definition for it. And you, 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 and you. We've all got our definitions of what's holy. And so, if I say, we need to be holy, we say, amen. But we're not even close. I'm not close, and you're not close. Because holiness is the idea, is the goal of becoming like Christ. Be holy, for I am holy. And whereas in our Christian lives, I can say, listen, we need holiness, we need holiness. We've settled at a point in our lives where we say, this is where I'm good. I have no desire to become more like Christ. I've got my standards. I've got my idea of separation. I've got my walk with God. I've got my devotional. I've got my soul winning. I've got my Sunday school class. I've got all my little ducks in a row. But we don't understand that our ducks aren't supposed to be in a row. Our ducks are supposed to be moving. Our ducks are supposed to be climbing. We're supposed to be becoming more like Christ. A process, is it not? But we become status. Quo. And I can say we need to grasp our individual need for holiness. And we can sit in the church tonight and say, Amen! But what is holiness? How do we define it? Look with me, if you would, in chapter 9, verse 13. Ezra's continuing in prayer. He says here, and after, all this, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespasses, seeing that thou, God, uh, that thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments? Do you see that phrase there? Should we again break thy commandments? Ezra goes on to say, he, he's saying here, Lord, you've been so merciful. You've judged us less than what we deserve. Our iniquities are wicked, and you have given us deliverance over and over and over again. Um, are we going to live in such a way as to break your commandments again? It's kind of a rhetorical question, because they've already just done it. How can... He's broken how can I do this to my God again? How can I keep making these same decisions over and over and over again? Should we break, should we again break thy commandments? Ezra's cry is, and his prayer is, is not one of God's Keep having mercy on them. It's a cry of, we can't continue like this. No, it wasn't a cry of, we can't continue like this. It was a cry of, I can't continue like this. 
Because he didn't call out to the people and said, hey, you need to all sit down your ash cloth or your, 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 your cloth and get in your ashes and, and pluck your beards. You know what Ezra did? He got down on his knees. He fell before his God. He cried out in repentance towards God. And I want you to note something right here. And I believe that this is, is very um, indica- indicative. It, it, it puts on display why we do not have revival. Right here, this reason. It has to do with holiness. Because Ezra, as he cries out for his own need of holiness, look at the response of the people. Ezra cried out in, re- in, in repentance. Let's see. Verse, uh, move along with me to, to chapter, uh, Ezra chapter 10. All right? This is moving a little forward in our story here, but I want to bring you to the end of the prayer. I want to show you the response of the people. Ezra chapter 10 and verse number 1. It says, When Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping, casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very large congregation, or very great congregation of men and women uh, who... Children uh, and women uh, whose children for the people wept very sore. You see the response, and, if, and we're not going to read on, but if you continue to read on, you'll see how the people, uh, follow along with me. When Ezra comes, he acknowledges that he's the one, that his need for holiness is greater. Although the people are living in sin, yes, he says, I'm the one, my wickedness, my iniquities. And here he does, he says, I need to be more holy. I'm not going to be that person that again breaks the commandments of God. And when he responds this way in chapter number 10, he cries out in repentance. He tears his clothes, plucks out his beard. He humbles himself before the Lord. And when Ezra decided that he was going to live more holy... When Ezra decided that he was going to be more like God, look at what happened to the people. They gathered to him. The people came. And you know what happened to the people? Revival. Revival. When Ezra decided to be more holy, it sparked revival. You know how, how strong a revival it start, started? These people came and said, even if it's our kids that we've had as offspring with the world, the Lord can take them from us. We will do whatever it takes to be right with God. That's a pretty true revival, I would say. Pretty clear and strong. But you know what it took? It took somebody grasping their need for holiness. Not the holiness of the person sitting next to them in the pew. Not the holiness of the wicked people out in the world. Not the holiness of their city or their nation. Just my holiness. On an individual and personal basis. Revival, it's what we need. Is it not? Maybe not. It's going to take holiness. And it's not going to be the holiness of the world that's going to make it happen. It's going to be the holiness of the church. But what are we willing to do to make it happen? How badly do we want revival to take place is, I guess, a question that I would ask. How badly would we desire holiness to take place, or revival to take place enough to be holy? 
Enough to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to become more like Christ. And if it means raising this standard, or if it means walking close... Hey, how about just walking with God, having a personal relationship with Him? It could be any number of things. And I don't know where you're at, but I know where I'm at. And I know the bar could be raised. I know I could be more like Christ. I know there's a myriad of areas in my life. And I'm not saying that you're going to hit every single one of those goals, but I'm I'm asking you, uh, are you trying to raise them? Are you trying to become more like Christ? Because I guarantee you, Ezra didn't become perfect when he fell down in that ash heap. And I'm not saying we need perfection. I'm not saying we need a bunch of Jesuses in here in order for revival to take place. I'm saying there's got to be the desire and action in our lives that is moving us in the direction of holiness. And when that takes place in the church and in our personal lives, revival will happen just like it happened for the children of Israel. But let me tell you about this here. We're going to wrap it up. I'm going to uncover this thing here. Ready? Ta-da. Not so fancy, huh? Go back to Ezra chapter 9. If you would, please. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about holiness. Here's the thing about revival. Here's, the, here, here's where this all comes down to. Because tonight, I think we've got a pretty good understanding that our sin is pretty wicked. Have we not? Yeah, it's pretty clear. I, I know I'm convicted about it. Holy Spirit's working in my heart. I, it's wicked. I need to do better. I need to be more like Christ. I need to work on that. I need holiness in my life. I want revival. I desire it. What is, that? what is the Lord telling me I need to change? I, I don't need to give you a list of what you need to do. The Holy Spirit is going to do a much better job than me. What, what is the thing in your area that's not holy and it needs to be moved out? Okay, we grasp the need for uh, the wickedness of our sin. We grasp the need for our personal holiness. But the thing is that as we begin to understand the wickedness of our sin and, and as we begin to become like Christ, there's going to be storms. There's going to be testings. There's going to be trials. There's going to be battles. There's going to be family problems. There's going to be wife problems. There's going to be husband problems. There's going to be children problems. There's going to be church problems. There's going to be health problems. There's going to be financial problems. You run the gamut. It's all going to break loose. And Ezra gives us the ticket here. He gives us how we can make the transition from understanding the wickedness of our sin and the understanding our need for holiness and then moving forward from there. Because face it, that's where most of, this, most of these messages die, with this knowledge. And it dies with this knowledge because of the, the testings and the trials that come as a result of us knowing things. Doesn't the Lord say we're going to be accountable for it? Yes, yeah, so that means there's going to be some testings because of our uh, information. It's just like class, you learn something and then there's a test. And most of the time we wind up failing, never move forward. Hey, Christianity isn't a no-child-left-behind system. You get left behind if you don't move forward. This is how it is. Remember what Pastor demonstrated so clearly, not moving forward is going backward. Look in chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. I'm going to read this verse. This is the key to all of this. This is the ticket. This is how we can get somewhere 
He says, now for a little space, grace, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. That alone right there, just stop and look at me. Grace hath been shown, showed, uh, shewed from the Lord our God. And now for a little space, grace hath been shewed from the Lord our God. Hey, ha- isn't God pretty patient with us? Yeah, he's pretty patient. We can make some pretty dumb decisions. And he's pretty patient. But it is a space. It's a limited time frame. And, and, and Ezra is acknowledging that here. Hey, we've only got so long that before God's going to have to drop the hammer on us again. Grace has been showed for a little time here. To leave us a remnant to escape. Continue on with me. And to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Isn't that what we need? We need some reviving in our bondage. That's where the children of Israel were. Although they had been set free, once again they had put themselves in bondage to the world. The Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Amorites, all of the ites that they were with. They, they, they left one slave master and joined right into another. And a lot of us are hitched up to it. Something we shouldn't be. Put ourselves in bondage with something we shouldn't, shouldn't be in bondage with. But I want you to notice one little phrase there. And he, sa- he says this, and he gave us a nail in his holy place. That's the title of this message tonight, and this is the most important fact of this whole message. A nail in his holy place. What does the nail mean? For years they had been slaves. For years they had no place to pitch their tents. For years they lived in, uh, in, in a foreign land, in a foreign home, and a tent belonged to their masters. But he said, now we've got an opportunity. The Lord has brought us back home. The holy place is a reference to Jerusalem. If you read Nehemiah, you'll see that he references it as a holy place. He's talking about the city. He's saying, hey, we've got it. We've been showed grace for a little space. And now we're back in this holy place. But not only that, the Lord has given us a nail in this holy place. What is the nail? What's the point? What's the, the, the symbolism here? Well, it's pretty exciting because the, what has happened is that the Lord didn't just set them free from the, from the slavery. He didn't just say, okay, uh, your time's up, your punishment's over, it's been three days, you were grounded, now it's time for you to go, you can go outside and play. See you later. No. He sent them out of slavery back to their homes and equipped them. I've given you a nail in a holy place. What's the nail for? It's to pitch their tent. We don't have, we don't have to go back to slavery. We don't have to be bondage anymore. We don't have to become some person's property. We can be free and we can serve God and worship God the way that we're supposed to. We have a tent. Uh, we have a nail in his holy place. Uh, what he's demonstrating is, is the, the significance. Let me put this in here. wants to pull it out you think the tent's coming undone you think when those storms come the tent's going anywhere you know what but what we do is we live in his holy place without our tent staked down we never get a hold of the nail and although we have great opportunity to live free in a land where we can worship and serve and and uh, and live our lives in a way that would please the lord you know what we do we sit here like this huh that's so awesome Our God is so good. He's so great. 
Look at how he provides for us. And then the storms come, and, and here we go, blown all the way over here. And we're up, and then we're down, and then we're up, and then we're down. And our Christian lives are like roller coasters, never moving us anywhere closer to holiness because we're over here and we're over here. Our sin isn't so wicked. Oh, it is wicked. No, it's not wicked anymore. Uh, It is wicked. No, it's not wicked anymore. When he has given us an opportunity to be grounded in him. Amen. You know what the thing about it is? A nail does some interesting work. But there has to be some elements in place for a nail to really be effective. It has to have something solid to go into, and it has to be strong enough. But there's a third thing. It has to be used. I can drive nails into walls all day long. We've got a nail in his holy place. I'm pretty sure the wall is strong enough. And it's his nail. Pretty sure that's strong enough too. But you know what never happens? God, I need you. I want to be like you. I want to be holy. I understand my sin is wicked. You know what's going to happen as soon as you start acknowledging those things in your life? Storms. Trials testings over and over and over. And then you're going to be down in a pit and you're going to say, God, how do I get out of this? God, I need your help. God, I need your strength. And most of the time what we do is we say, okay, I got to go fix this. When if we would have just stayed right here on the nail in his holy place. And Ezra says here, hey people, hey church, hey Christian, we have a great opportunity We need revival. We need to understand the grasp of the wickedness of our sins. We need to grasp the need for holiness. But know what else we need to do? We need to grasp onto the nail in his holy place. I don't know about you, but I know that his sustenance will carry us through. I know that he promises safety from the storms. I know that his mercy is new every morning, that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light, that his grace is sufficient, that his word is true, that his foundation is sure, that he gives us strength to soar as eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. We have his strong arms that reach down and set our feet on a solid rock. We have an anchor that is sure. But none of those things do any good unless we hold on to the nail. What good is an anchor if it's not firmly secured to the boat? Sure, it can grab onto the rock that is sure, steadfast, grounded in his love. That's where many of our anchors sit. But the boat's not anywhere near. Because we're not holding on to the nail. We don't have a grip of it. I desire something to happen in my life and in my lifetime to see revival, to see things change. Yes, I hurt and I sin and I fail. Same as you hurt and you sin and you fail. 
But are you on the nail? Do you understand the wickedness of your sin? Do you really grasp your need for holiness? And are you holding on to the nail? I don't know what you're going through in your lives tonight. And you may not be going through any type of struggle or trial or difficulty that... uh, I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that just on the basis alone that our sin is wicked and that if we desire to be holy, we're going to run into storms... We have got to learn this principle right here, just as Ezra learned the principle. We've been given grace for a little time, but we have got to get a hold of the nail in his holy place. What do you think, church? Think we can learn to do that? We need it. We need it. We need it, right? Don't we? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I know that when this isn't what it should be, my walk with God isn't what it should be, man, I just feel like things are up and down and up and down and up and down. You know what the nail is in your life? It's this. But some people don't know how to use it. It's a solid, secure place, and it's a strong nail. But we don't know how to use it. We don't know how to walk. We don't know how to have a relationship. We don't know how to learn from it. We don't know what holiness is because we don't even know how to determine what God is trying to say to us. We've got to get a hold of the nail. And in a very practical way, the nail in your life is your Bible. Sure, it's all fun and dandy and it's real emotional to say we've got to get a hold of the nail. Great truth. But really what I'm saying is this. This has got to be our nail, and you've got to get anchored to it. Whatever it teaches, I'm going to apply. Whatever it tells me, I'm going to do. And I'm going to learn how to use it effectively in my life to be the Christian that I ought to be. Father, Lord, we do thank you for this evening. Lord, we do thank you for your word and how you speak to us. Lord, we're asking that you would help us as Christians to get a hold of the nail, Lord, to utilize it the way that we should in our lives.